Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's Word. First to Matthew chapter 16. We're just going to read verses 21 through 25. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, uh, you'll find that on page 822. Matthew 16, 21 to 25. If you're able to put a finger in Ecclesiastes 11, that'll be our main passage uh, this morning. Well, it's saying this is God's word, his testimony to us of what is true and what his will for us is. Please give your attention to the reading of it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And now please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. I know your bulletin says that we're going to read the first seven verses, but that's Cheyenne's fault for believing me when I told her that. Uh, We're going to read the first eight verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. If you're using one of the pew aisles, you'll find that on page 559. Again, this is God's word. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet and pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. In a sense, the reading of God's word, let us ask him to be with us while we spend time in it and speak to our hearts through it. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and hearts. You know our fears and our doubts. Flood this darkness, we pray, with the light of your grace and peace. Open our minds to your truth. Grant us hope. Grant us faith. Increase our understanding and allow us to receive you through your word. Let your love shine through the pages of your scripture. And may your spirit be with us as we read and hear. May he grant that we might delight in all we encounter there. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
I really can't imagine any words that Jesus spoke to Peter that were more shocking than calling him Satan. We know this passage. Peter had just had one of his most shining moments. When asked who they believed Jesus to be, Peter stepped up and made that confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus praised his answer. He says, this isn't just something you figured out, Peter. This isn't the power of logic and reasoning. You are in touch with the spiritual realm. The Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Peter had to be feeling pretty good. On top of the world. How much would any of us love to hear such praise from our Savior? I know we're not supposed to, but it's kind of hard not to envy Peter at that moment. And that's what makes what happens next all that much harder. Matthew tells us that from then on, Jesus began to show his disciples what lay ahead. He needed to go to Jerusalem to be killed. And Peter couldn't stand it. And he said so. No, Lord, you will not die. The idea was simply unbearable. And Peter was not going to sit silently. And I think we can empathize with him. No matter how many times we read the Bible, we still want Jesus to escape the unjust treatment he receives in Jerusalem. We get it. We, we know that it simply doesn't make sense for the Lord of glory, the Lord of life, to die such a horrific death at the hands of sinners. And yet Jesus' response was emphatic and it was blunt. Get behind me, Satan. You're thinking with man's logic, not heaven's. You're fighting God on this one. And it's hard for us to hear. It's hard for us to understand. It defies all our logic. But that's just it, isn't it? Our problem is often that we think with human logic and then we're caught off guard when God doesn't. And that's really what our passage in Ecclesiastes 11 is about. If I could summarize our passage in one sentence it would be like this god refuses to operate according to man's ideas on what should happen and until we accept this our lives will be filled with anxiety let me say that again god refuses to operate according to our ideas of what should be and until we accept that our lives will be filled with anxiety It's interesting, uh, listening to atheists, there's always seems, if you, if you do, you, listen to a, you know, read a book, listen to a lecture or a debate, there always seems to be this inherent tension, really a contradiction in how they think and how they speak. I'll give you an example or two. Stephen Hawking famously said this, the human race 
is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among a hundred billion galaxies. We are so insignificant that I can't believe the whole universe exists for our benefit. But he also says this, where there is life, there is hope. Simultaneously, he held a despairing view of humanity's insignificance, but was willing to acknowledge the inherent value of life and the hope that it possesses. Christopher Hitchens loved to argue against God's existence on moral grounds. He simultaneously denied absolute good and evil absolute right and wrong, and then dismissed God on moral grounds because God, in Hitchens' opinion, was not good in any absolute sense. You see, there's this tendency to formally deny God and yet practically embrace Him. Now, before you get too excited and start pointing fingers at their inconsistency and say, go on, pastor, let them have it, I need to be honest with you that I've brought up these examples to point out that we, as Christians, are guilty of the very same thing, just in the opposite direction. We formally confess belief in God, but we often live as if he doesn't exist. It's practical atheism. It's living as if we don't truly believe he's there, as if he isn't who he says he is. What does that look like? What am I talking about? Practical atheism is when we look at life and we try to live as if the laws of logic and nature were all that existed. We try to boil our world down to formulas of how things should work so that we can confidently predict the future. If we just do this, then that will happen. And we we build up all these expectations and beliefs of how the world works. We figure out what we need to do. And believe that if we do, certain things will just happen. We say things like, well, if I eat right and I exercise, I'll never get sick. If If I drive the speed limit, I'll never be in an accident. If I just devote myself to my spouse, I'll never be betrayed. If I give my child everything she needs, she'll be spared from all adversity and affliction. Practical atheism tries to take God out of the equation of our lives. It lives as as if he isn't there. That's how it operates, and we all do it. What are the results? What does this accomplish? Practical atheism fails to see the world as it really is. And that can never lead to good results. Inevitably, things 
don't turn out like we expected them to. The health nut gets sick. The safe driver gets hit by a drunk. The selfless spouse gets taken advantage of. The child in the best of families is struck with adversity. The formula doesn't work. And we end up surprised. We end up frustrated. We feel betrayed. Like reality has let us down, broken our agreement. We end up with ulcers. Anxiety is what happens when life doesn't meet our expectations. Anxiety is not a direct result of hardship. It's a consequence of unmet expectations. It's the resulting confusion of when we think things should be one way and they turn out to be another way. And if you try to live as if God does not exist, you will always be surprised, confused, frustrated, and anxious because it's not reality. So why do people do it? More importantly, why do we, as believing Christians, do it? What could possibly motivate us to live and behave in such a way? And the answer is simple. We don't want to surrender. We don't like variables we can't control. We don't like the human element in decision-making, and we like the God element even less. Because we know that God does what he wants, that he can't be controlled, bribed, or threatened. And that means our futures are unknowable because it's not a simple matter of doing one thing and accomplishing another. And that scares us. It terrifies us. And so the temptation exists to try to convince ourselves that some formula must exist that we can control our future because we want a sure thing. We don't want risk. We want to figure things out, how they work, so that we don't have to trust God. And this is why the commandments that open our passage frustrate us. What does it mean to cast your bread upon the water? It means to take your blessings where you're tempted to find your security and let them go. And then it says, and after, you will find it after many days. The idea is trust God that he will bring back to you what you need. And that's carried forward in verse 2. Share what you have with seven others. Better yet, eight. Who knows when you will be in need and you might need others to share with you. And this is the struggle we think well, if I don't give stuff away, if I, if I hold on tight, I'll never be in need because I'll have it all stored up for, for lean times. We, we see selfishness as our, as our security blanket. 
And Ecclesiastes says, stop it. That's not how it works. That's not reality. You need to learn to let go. And again, we, we struggle because this defies the laws of logic. Logic tells us that if you let something go, it's gone. You don't sustain a livelihood by, by giving everything away. You don't get ahead by watching out for others. We all learned math. If I have two apples and I give two away, I have zero apples. But this is the math of our world. It's not the math of heaven. It's, it's not God's math. God says if you have two apples and you give them away, you might have four or one, or zero, or six. Because there's no formula. There's no sure thing. You have to surrender. Surrender and trust. And we think it's not just illogical, it's unnatural. That's not how nature works. And God's the creator of nature. So Solomon says, okay, let's learn a lesson from nature. Look at the clouds. You think that nature tells you that if you have something and you, and you give up what you have, you have nothing. If you cast your bread upon the water, it will get soggy and it will sink and you'll go hungry. That's nature, right? Solomon says, verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, what do they do? They empty themselves. Why do the clouds have the rain? Not to hoard it up but to share it and to bless others. Isn't that what nature teaches us? What if a cloud said, if I release my water, I'll have nothing left? You respond, but that's why you have the water to share. That's the point. And Ecclesiastes says, exactly. And God has blessed you so that you can bless others. What could be more natural? What could be more logical? Otherwise, you're just like a cloud that refuses to rain. God is saying that when we misunderstand his purposes, we'll be confused and frustrated and anxious. Isn't that what happened to Peter? His logic went something like this. Jesus is sinless. He is the king of righteousness. Someone who is sinless, perfect, deserves life, deserves glory and exaltation. There is no possible way he could die. Or maybe his logic was as simple as something like this. It would be a little bit more like us. I like Jesus, and if he dies... I'll be unhappy, and what could God possibly want more than my happiness? But either way, rather than trusting Jesus' words as true, Peter trusted his own logic, his own reasoning. And he looked at Jesus and he uttered those words, You will surely not die. Do those words sound familiar? Where have we heard those words before? 
Isn't that exactly how Satan challenged the word of God in the Garden of Eden? When Jesus calls Peter Satan, it's because Peter's quoting him. But Jesus knows something Peter doesn't. Because Jesus isn't constrained by human reason and logic. Jesus knows why he's been sent into this world, and it's to lay down his life. He knows that Peter's only hope of salvation is by laying down that life. And not just Peter, but you and me. Jesus knows that if he doesn't give up his life, we will lose ours. The only way to save us from what we deserve for our sins is to suffer in our place. And Jesus also knows that if he lays down his life, it will return to him. He knows that he will rise again. He told his disciples that. He knows something nature can't teach us. Death is not final and it will not win. He knows that he will gain more by letting go of his life than he would gain by holding on to it. He would gain a redeemed people that we would become his inheritance. Something that's not true if he refuses to lay down his life. None of this is obvious. None of this can be discerned through logic and reason. We must take God at his word and trust him to believe it and to see it. And that's really what the second part of our passage is about. Learning to accept that there are things beyond your control. Again, he uses an image from nature to teach us this. If a tree falls, he says, in the place where that tree falls, there it will lie. In other words, no one looks at a fallen tree and says, I think I'll move that out of my way. You just go around it. It's too big. You can't lift it. Some things are just too big, outside your control, things you just can't change. And failing to accept that will only lead to frustration, maybe even an injured back. So contrary to what your second grade teacher said, there are some things you can't do, even if you believe in yourself. And learning to identify what you can't change will save you from a world of grief. Accepting that some things are just beyond your control is the road to peace. Thinking you can change something doesn't change them. It just leads to frustration. It actually makes things worse. Look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. And it's talking about the farmer who's waiting for just the right time to sow so that his crops will be perfect, watching the skies and the clouds for that perfect time to plant. He thinks if if he watches carefully, he'll figure out the perfect time to plant, and he'll remove all risk in sowing his fields. 
But what happens? In his quest for certainty, he never finds it, he never plants, and there's no harvest. The very thing he feared, not having food, becomes reality because he was paralyzed by fear. When you think that you can't move forward until you're sure there's no risk, you'll never act. Your quest for certainty doesn't save you from danger. It ensures it. It paralyzes you. And that's not how God has called you to live. He doesn't call you to live a life without risk. Because such a life would require no faith, no trust, and no surrender. He calls you to trust him, not your strength, not your reason, not your bank account, him. And what that means is that we need to make our peace with reality. We've been at war with it for far too long. And it's time to bury the hatchet and figure out how to get along. So long as we try to live as if life is a formula, so long as we plug in the right actions, we will reap the right consequences, we will be frustrated. Because this misses the most important aspect of reality, the God who is. Verse 7 tells us there will be good days. Verse 8 tells us there will be many dark days. The sooner you accept that fact, the sooner you will be prepared for what lies ahead, whether good or ill. And just as you do not know how a spirit comes into the bones of a child within the womb of his mother, neither do you know the plans of God who rules over all. His goal is not to make your life the consequence of a simple, godless formula with no need of him. His greatest hope for you is not your comfort. His goal for you is to learn to trust him, to be like him, to be generous with your resources, not selfish, to believe his word over what your senses tell you, to believe that you can cast your bread upon the water and trust that God will return it to you. It's fitting, isn't it, that Jesus would connect his life to bread. He would call himself and his life bread. He said he's the bread of heaven, the bread of life. He said the bread in the Lord's Supper before us represents his body given in death on the cross. In other words, laying down his life was the greatest act of casting bread in all of history. He took the bread of his own life and he cast it on the waters, trusting his father to return it to him after three days. He didn't hold on to his life, but for our sakes, He let go. 
and it defies all earthly wisdom, reason, and logic. And yet it makes complete heavenly sense. It's what life looks like when you are convinced that God's ways are not our ways. And this is what the Lord's Supper reminds us of every week. More than this, it shows us what our response to God should look like. After Jesus had called Peter Satan, he continued and said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because it's not just Jesus who's called to hold on to his life loosely. Your life, beloved, is more, it is so much more than trying to make your days on earth as long and comfortable as possible. Jesus went on and he said, whoever would save his life will lose it, and who would ever lose his life for my sake will find it. Sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Hold on to your bread, your life, and you'll lose it. But cast it on the water, and you'll save it. Your life is an opportunity to live each day in light of who God is. It's an opportunity to trust him. So cast your life, cast your bread upon the waters. And after many days, God will return it to you. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive the Lord's gift to us in the Lord's Supper to drive these things home. Well, please bow with me in prayer. Father, you sent your son to give his life for us. Teach us what it means to give our lives for him. Teach us to hold on to your gifts lightly, confident that if we have you, we have all we need. Teach us to find comfort in confessing and accepting those things over which we have no control, knowing that you are in control of all things. Indeed, Father, this is our comfort, that you are good, that you are sovereign, and that we are yours. Amen.